From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The world's Islamic leaders issue a call to all the faithful to take action on climate change. It's a sacred duty. It's a core function of Islam to care for the planet. It's a responsibility. If you don't act on climate change, it's actually a sin, a haram, which means you get punished. It's something very inspiring, even for climate activists. The faith-based fight for the climate gains billions more allies. Also, a trip back to a beloved childhood swimming hole finds the once clear water murky and overgrown with algae. I have this vision in my eye of crystal clear, air clear water, and now the water's greener brown and dark. It makes me sad. What went wrong to make Florida's jewels disappear? We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A coalition of 80 leading Islamic clerics, scholars, and officials meeting in Istanbul has issued a declaration on climate change, calling on all nations and peoples to phase out greenhouse gas emissions as soon as possible. Concern about global warming has been building in the Muslim world ahead of the U.N. summit, and some Saudi clerics have issued a fatwa ordering climate protection, though it's received little notice compared with the recent encyclical from Pope Francis. Of course, the Pope leads 1.2 billion Roman Catholics, while there is no central leader to speak for the world's 1.6 billion Muslims. But Islamic nations, including wealthy oil-producing states, are taking action on global warming, says Weil Maiden. He's director of Climate Action Network International, one of the conference organizers, and joins us now from Istanbul. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Glad to be here. Talk to me a bit about Islamic uh, religion and what the literature and traditions say about protecting nature and the planet and so on. Well, I'm uh, a born Muslim, but I am not a practicing Muslim. But I learned a lot in the past two days from the conference, and I was really happily surprised by how rigorous uh, the Qur'an and the Islamic uh, teachings on uh, environment and care for the planet. It's a core function of Islam to care for the planet. It's a responsibility. If you don't act on climate change, it's actually a sin, a haram, which means you get punished. It surprisingly talks about the delicate balance that uh, all the creatures have on Earth, and it's uh, the responsibility of humans to protect this balance. It also talks actually about how humankind should not think that they are more important than other creatures. It talks about the role of all creatures and the need of respect this uh, diversity in the planet. So all of these kinds of proverbs from the Quran and the Islamic teachings, as well as stories about Prophet Muhammad's uh, life and his care for the environment, clearly puts environmental care and climate change key issue for an Islamic teaching. And hearing strong statements saying that it is forbidden not to phase out greenhouse gas emissions coming from Islamic scholars is something very inspiring, even for climate activists. I have a copy of the Quran. The translation is the Yusuf Ali translation. The very first verse says, Glory to God Most High, full of grace and mercy. 
He created all, including man. To man, he gave a special place in his creation. He honored man to be his agent, and to that end, endowed him with understanding, purified his affections, and gave him spiritual insight so that man should understand nature, understand himself, and know God through his wondrous signs and glorify him in truth, reverence, and unity. If you compare that to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, some people translate that to mean that God gave man dominion over nature and all the creatures. So um, there may be a race that's on here. Wow. <laughs> What's the interesting in the declaration, they call for a race and they welcome the race. And I'm happily surprised by this uh, knowledge where they ask, they challenge everyone to exceed them and be more ambitious on climate change, inviting all faces to join in the fight and so on. Yes, let's talk in detail about the climate change declaration that was developed during the symposium. Outline for me the actions and goals that it has set and, and what kind of language was used to express these. So in terms of goals and numbers, I think we don't have any document that is as clear as this document in terms of what needs to happen. They clearly talk about phasing out fossil fuels. They clearly say that rich countries and all rich countries need to phase out fossil fuel emissions, not later than the middle of the century. It clearly calls on all nations to go 100% renewable energy as soon as possible. It also calls on keeping two-thirds of fossil fuel reserves in the ground. It also has a request to businesses and the private sector needing to go 100% renewable energy, as well as all Islamic organizations and communities, and they have a long list of these communities from Islamic universities to mosques to organizations and so on, to take strong action on climate change and start changing their behavior. The Declaration directly acknowledges that climate change is going on and it's happening at a faster rate than ever before, uh, much of which is due to human action. It presents evidence for this. So please tell us about those acknowledgments and how they'll affect the Muslim community's response to climate change, in your view. So we've never had a skeptics community in the Islamic world. From all the Islamic countries, really, no one stood up and said that climate change is not happening. Islam leaves science to scientists, and we hear what scientists said, and that there's a consensus on the science of climate change, and that's what the situation is. So many of the oil-rich nations are, of course, Islamic nations. This declaration is asking them to go out of business, it sounds like. Some people might see it like that, but for the participants, it's not. For the participants, it's a duty to do it. And it's not challenging them or confronting them. They looked at it apolitically as faith individuals and faith organizations. They looked at the issue morally and what needs to be done. So the numbers they put is what needs to happen, and we have no choice. Otherwise, we lose our economies as well, because climate change can lead to the collapse of human economy. So historically, Saudi Arabia has been seen as oppositional, particularly in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the science group looking at this, and sometimes at the UNFCCC meetings, the big climate negotiations as well. What representation from Saudi Arabia did you have at this meeting, and what do you think the Saudi response is going to be? 
So we had three individuals from Saudi Arabia, uh, from different sectors. So they were very strong on the need to act on climate change. And yes, Saudi Arabia has historically been uh, very obstructive in the negotiations. There has been a lot of changes, though, in the past few years. We can see them putting a very ambitious solar target. We can see them uh, preparing an, a new commitment for the Paris Agreement. Many statements by the royal family talks about the end of the age of fossil fuels and the new energy, and we know that uh, we cannot rely on fossil fuels forever for our economic uh, development. We can see that even the idea of keeping fossil fuel costs so low, which is keeping a lot of new fossil fuel resources out of touch because they're not economical anymore, like the Arctic fossil fuel reserves, the deep sea oil, and many others. So I don't think they've done this action because they want to reduce climate change, but we can build an argument with them on the importance of strong climate action because it has economical benefit for them and it can help them in their diversification mission. So let me see if I hear what you're saying. On the one hand, you're saying that maybe an unintended consequence, but as Saudi Arabia keeps pumping oil at a relatively low cost, this is keeping stuff like the tar sands and deep sea oil from being developed, which is good for the planet. And on the other hand, are you also saying that they might be willing to turn the immense wealth that they have today, use that capital to build the new businesses before they are put out of the business of fossil fuels? Yes, and their role as obstructionists can change. And I see them changing a lot over the past three, four years. If you listen now to Saudi Arabia and compare it to what they said before Copenhagen, it's 180 degrees different. Give us a bit of a roadmap on the diversity in Islam on this issue. What fault lines, if any, are there in the question of climate with the different sects, the different points of view in Islam? And the fault lines are not between the sects, but between the rich and poor Islamic countries. So you have Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE, rich Islamic countries, while on the other hand you have Bangladesh, Indonesia, Maldives, and others who are poor countries and suffering greatly from climate change, all of them. So what's good about this Islamic declaration, it gives an opportunity for Islamic countries to discuss and find a compromise among themselves. And uh, I think it's easier to reach a solution because at the moment, the discussion between these countries is happening in the UNFCCC. So I think this could be a, a way to make some difficult countries accept climate action even more. Let's go to politics for a moment here, or international negotiations. Now, this declaration also points to the fact that previous climate agreements have not been ratified on a wide enough scale to make a major difference. How do you think this affects climate action perceptions in the Muslim world leading up to this big set of negotiations in Paris later this year? So, yes, it does build expectation from Paris, the declaration. It does target uh, the international climate negotiations directly saying that we need to achieve a breakthrough in Paris and not repeat what happened in the past opportunities. And the good thing about what has happened here in the two days is that they didn't just aim to produce a declaration and that's it, but their plan is to take this declaration 
and go to uh, governments, go to Muslim communities, go to UN agencies to, uh, to talk about it and engage these governments in the declaration. And they want to do it before Paris because they want to have it impacting Paris. So what happens next now after this symposium? Is there some kind of organization that is created? What keeps things moving forward? There's an agreement to establish an informal group, like a network. My understanding that the name that was adopted is Muslims for Climate, that will uh, follow up on all the ideas that came out from the conference. And the ideas are varied. Some of them are high level, like I mentioned, going to the UN agencies, to governments and but also the representatives of the organizations that attended want to create action plans in their communities of influence to bring the declaration. And a lot of ideas came forward. Someone said that we need to have a copy of the declaration in every mosque hanging on the wall for people to read. Others are talking about having fatwas and khutbas about climate change, which is like the weekly talks in every mosque, we need to transform all mosques to renewable energy, and so on. So a lot of ideas, and they've created this platform, Muslims for Climate, to continue the dialogue and implement all these ideas that came up. While Maiden is director of the Climate Action Network International, joined us on the line from Istanbul, Turkey. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you. The Obama administration continues its series of regulations to address global warming in advance of the U.N. climate summits, and the latest effort calls for more than a 40% reduction in methane from new oil and gas wells. The methane rules come on the heels of the controversial power plant rules to sharply reduce carbon dioxide emissions. And even before those power plant rules were formally announced in the Federal Register, 15 Republican-led states once again asked the courts to block implementation. Professor Pat Parento of the Vermont Law School joins us now to discuss these rules and the ongoing court battles. Pat, welcome back to Living on Earth. Thank you, Steve. So first, tell me, what exactly are these methane rules and how important are they from a climate perspective? These rules apply to the wells that produce natural gas, both conventional wells and the new fracking wells that use the hydraulic fracturing technology. They're designed to reduce emissions of methane that leak from the wells and from compressor stations, also some other volatile organic compounds, benzene, xylene, some pretty nasty air pollutants. So these are very welcome rules. The states sued EPA some years ago, challenging the failure of EPA to set specific methane standards for these gas production wells, and so EPA has now done so. And from a climate perspective, remind us how important methane is. Very important. The latest studies are that methane in the short run, in the 20-year time frame, is 87 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon. And in the longer time frame of 100 years, it's about 37 times more potent. So very important, say the scientists, to get a handle on methane emissions. Now, if these rules, in fact, end up getting implemented, How far do they go to make natural gas a viable fuel from an environmental perspective? You know, that's a very difficult question to answer. This is only looking at the production end of the natural gas system. If you think about all the thousands of miles 
of pipelines and distribution systems, including right there in Boston, uh, leaks occur at every stage of the process. And this rule is only looking at the front end of it. So the total loss of methane from the entire natural gas system is actually unknown. And there have been lots of studies of what are called top-down studies using satellites and, and other aircraft to measure the amount of methane that comes off of a major basin like the Uinta Basin in Utah. And the studies there show that the meth methane leaking from the entire area that's being developed is much, much greater than was thought, up into the 17% figures of methane leakage. So we're a long way, frankly, from understanding what the net effect of relying on natural gas is in terms of achieving some of these really stringent climate goals of limiting warming to two degrees Celsius, for example. It's not clear that gas can do that. How is the oil and gas industry responding to the uh, Obama methane gas rules? Well, I know that EPA went out of its way to consult with the industry. My guess is the most of the industry, while they may not be happy with these rules, are probably going to accept them. The publicity around fracking has gotten to the point where I think the gas industry knows that it needs to be doing more to convince the public that it's doing everything it can to make gas safe and environmentally sound. So I guess I would would hope to see that the industry would actually accept and maybe even embrace these rules and then use them as an argument in favor of developing yet more gas resources. So what kind of legal challenges might we expect to see from industry on this? Well, some of the industry may say that the technology to capture the amount of methane that the rule requires is not readily available at every location. But overall, I don't see that these rules are imposing the kinds of costs that we've seen from other rules, like the mercury rule that we've talked about before. Gas is, after all, a valuable commodity, and the industry is fond of saying, my goodness, we don't want to leak methane. We want to capture as much as we can and sell it. So EPA is basically saying to the industry, prove it, do it. Uh, Pat, I want you to bring us up to speed on uh, industry challenges to the power plants rules, particularly this big regulation that the EPA is in the process of issuing uh, to regulate uh, carbon emissions. And I understand that some 15 states went to court asking the Circuit Court of Appeals there in, in D.C. to block the rules even before it was put in the Federal Register. What's going on? Right. Well, these are the same states that sued some months ago when it was just a proposed rule to try to get the court to block EPA from even proceeding with the rulemaking. That effort failed because the D.C. Circuit, which reviews these rules, held that uh, it was premature to challenge a rule that wasn't even final. Now these same states and some of the coal industry are back into, the, into court saying, well, the rule is now final in the sense that Administrator McCarthy has signed it. And so now we want the court to stay the rule and allow the courts to review on the merits whether EPA has the authority to actually promulgate this rule and require the changes in our energy system that will reduce carbon emissions. Like the earlier case, a lot of us that have been studying these various attempts to block EPA believe the court will not grant the stay or the injunction that the states are seeking. And the right outcome is for the court to say, wait till the rule is published in the Federal Register. That's the act that the Clean Air Act says triggers the process of judicial review. And then let the courts consider the case in due course 
The first deadline for the states to meet under this new rule isn't until summer of 2016 to submit a, a plan. And if the states can't comply with the 2016 date, EPA has left open the possibility of extending it for another two years to 2018. So EPA's argument is going to be there's plenty of time for the courts to review what we've done and make a decision. And in the meantime, the smart states should get busy preparing these plans to comply with the clean air rule that we've promulgated. There's not a whole lot of time left for the Obama administration to bring this rule to full fruition. To what extent are the states trying to keep the Obama administration from getting over that figurative goal line? Oh, I think that is part of their strategy. They would like to see this rule kicked into the next administration. We don't know who that will be, but some people may be hoping that it's a more sympathetic administration to the industry and to the states that have to comply with the rule. On the other hand, it's also true that since the real expertise in developing this rule is the, is the staff of the EPA that's there now, and in particular, Gina McCarthy, the administrator, there's a sense that this is the group that needs to defend this rule. They're the ones who developed it, who know it. Obama, of course, has staked his legacy on this rule. So in terms of, of what's the best opportunity to defend this rule and win approval from the courts, it would be doing it now sooner rather than later. How does all this maneuvering affect the United States negotiating position going into the big Paris climate negotiations later this fall? Well, right now, the United States has earned itself a lot of credibility with this plan in places like China and India, where the president has been actively negotiating with the leaders of those countries to get them to come to Paris open to the idea of making serious commitments to reduce their carbon footprints if this rule is derailed by the courts, that could affect, I think, the U.S. leverage over some of the major emitters. So there is right now, I think, a window where opponents of the rule are trying to do all they can to send the signal to the rest of the world that although President Obama is on board with this rule, a large portion of America is not, and try to influence perhaps the course of the negotiations in Paris away from forcing really binding targets on, on the U.S. Pat Parento teaches environmental law at the Vermont Law School. Pat, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. You're welcome, Steve. Well, this August, the many presidential candidates are busy shaking hands at the Iowa State Fair, trying to sell their message to those first caucus voters. But the American public's attention is still mostly on summer. There's nothing like an escape to the seaside or the mountains or to other favorite places for fresh air and sunshine. But as reporter Doug Strzok discovered when he took a sentimental trip back to a beloved childhood haunt, sometimes what you reveled in way back when just can't be found again. My childhood swimming hole was a mystical place. It was home of the creature from the Black Lagoon, and Joe Panther, and Tarzan. It was a movie stand-in for the Bermuda Triangle. I think Jack Lemmon trapped in a submerged jetliner, staring out at a freshwater bass. This was Wakulla Springs, Florida, a place with water so vodka clear it drew filmmakers, tourists, and locals. 
We used to say you could flip a dime overboard and watch it hit the bottom 120 feet down. Schools of catfish glided in ethereal space as tourists oohed and awed in glass-bottom boats above. The water was so clear that when old Joe, an 11-foot gator, left his sandbar a couple of hundred feet across the spring and moseyed over to our side, we could all see him coming. We got out of the water until old Joe left, presumably with a toothy grin of amusement at his sport. Wakulla and other springs bubble up from Florida's limestone aquifer in clear, goosebump-cold brilliance. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, the famed biographer of Florida's wetlands, called the springs pools of light. The lights are dimming. If you've watched the springs for just since 1980, since I've been watching it, you have watched this carpet of algae move up into the system and begin to cover everything. Dan Pennington is an environmental planner in Tallahassee. Now you just find strings of algae kind of you know, hooked to the dirt, hooked to the rocks that are on the bottom, and just sort of, you know, hanging and flowing in the, in the current. Algae not only coats the bottom, but grows in microscopic particles that float in the water, turning it from clear to green. My name's Bob Knight. I'm the director of the Howard T. Odom Florida Springs Institute, located in Gainesville, Florida. We have about a thousand natural springs in Florida, artesian springs, and, uh, they are, uh, across the board, uh, suffering from reduced water volume flow rates. Um, and they are, across the board, polluted with nitrate nitrogen. We talked as we hiked into Three Sisters Springs near Crystal River, Florida. It's a small, fresh pool, alive with swimmers on a hot summer day. But that right there is a spring boil area. That the is problem is too many people who draw water for everything from drinking to watering lawns to irrigating fields from the same aquifers that feed the springs. And as the aquifers drop, the humans add more nutrients from fertilizer and sewage. Jim Stevenson was chief naturalist at the Florida Department of Environmental Protection. Springs die of uh, two human acts. One is overpumping the aquifer that feeds the spring, and the other is putting nitrates into the aquifer. And the source of nitrates are we human beings in the form of fertilizers, whether it's on golf courses or lawns or crops, and uh, also human waste as well as livestock waste. To help reduce the nitrates in McCullough Springs, the city of Tallahassee spent more than a quarter billion dollars on an advanced wastewater treatment plant. That's helped, but there still are thousands of homes with septic fields in the watershed of the springs. The nutrients from these septic fields drain quickly through the sandy soil, into the aquifers, and out into the springs where they feed the algae. When you put water and sunlight and nutrients together, something green is going to grow. The visibility has been cut so much, Wakulla is down to one glass-bottom boat. It's taken out so seldomly that a moorhen, a red-billed waterbird, has made a nest in it. Now, many of the 200,000 visitors to Wakulla Springs take the jungle riverboat cruise, and they still see lots of wildlife. Oh, looks like we've got a gator in the water up here on the right. Years ago, there was a 33-foot diving platform. You had to get up your nerve, race up the steps, and run straight off the edge. 
If you stopped to look down, you'd never jump. But once in, you could snorkel down, down into a pool of wavy eelgrass and gar and bass and turtles. You were amid the fish. They teased you just out of reach. A dozen feet down was a hollow log that the bravest of swimmers would go through. Even braver scuba divers entered the labyrinth of caves that fed Wakulla. Some never emerged. Bob Thompson was a park ranger at Wakulla Springs for 11 years and ran the tour boats. So you start at the boat dock and you build some interest as you proceed towards the Wakulla Spring. And it's a drop off from 23 feet to 120 feet deep. People just go crazy when they see that, you know, gasp and oh my God. People who have a fear of heights are uh, quite a bit scared generally. The grass and the log are gone. The diving platform was cut down to a mere 20 feet. And old Joe, he was shot by a poacher, although he's not entirely gone. He was stuffed and now watches from a glass display in the lobby of the Wakulla Springs Hotel. Bob Thompson retired, but went back to running the tour boats for a while as a volunteer. Now he has stopped. I unvolunteered from driving riverboat tours. And, and uh, I wish that it weren't so, but more and more I see what is missing. I, I have this vision in my eye of crystal clear, air clear water, and now the water's green or brown and dark. It makes me sad. Well, to see for myself, I came back to Wakulla Spring. It had been a few decades, and I took the plunge. Just as cold as it always was. Now to see what I can see underwater. Whoa. It's disappointing. The algae is a black fuzz that coats the bottom and sucks up the light. The luxurious waving eelgrass is pretty patchy. The schools of fish are mostly missing. The Wakulla Springs of my childhood swimming hole, the Wakulla Springs of jeweled luminescence, now exists only in memories. This is Doug Strzok at Wakulla Springs, Florida, for Living on Earth. There are photos at our website, LOE.org. Your comments on our program are always welcome. Call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Our email address is comments at LOE.org. That's comments at LOE.org. And visit our webpage at LOE.org. Coming up, radicals and the beautiful spacious skies of the American West. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Let's head off beyond the headlines now with Peter Dykstra. 
He's part of the team at Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org and joins us on the line now from Conyers, Georgia. Hi there, Peter. Hello, Steve. You know, over the past couple of weeks, I've been pondering the spectacle out in the Animus River, much in the news because an EPA cleanup contractor poked a hole in the waste lagoon from the abandoned Gold King Mine, and three million gallons of liquid mining waste turned the river into a grotesque mustard yellow color for a few days, shutting the river to recreation and prompting drinking water concerns in Colorado, Utah, and the Navajo Nation in New Mexico. Yeah, the images of a bright yellow river in the desert, well, should we say memorable? Right, and EPA and other regulatory agencies are already pretty unpopular, particularly in the West, but a strange thing happened in the political blowback to all of this. Frequent EPA critics who otherwise wouldn't know mines from a hole in the ground got really, really worked up over mine waste. Now that EPA is responsible for a spill, a three million gallon spill is not good. But as you reported last week, at Mount Polly, an active gold and copper mine in British Columbia last year, a dam broke, sending about 5 billion, with a B, gallons of waste downstream. In the western U.S., there are thousands of abandoned hard rock mines like the one EPA was trying to clean up. And all over the country, there are coal ash dumps like the one in Tennessee that dumped a billion gallons of toxic waste into the Emory River nearly seven years ago, or a similar spill in the Dan River in North Carolina last year. Yeah, and not just the coal ash dumps at power plants, Peter, but abandoned coal mines as well, right? Absolutely. After the Animus River spill, the newspaper in Scranton, Pennsylvania, reminded its readers that abandoned coal mines in that area spill more acidic, metal-contaminated waste into local rivers every day than EPA's gold mine accident did. In terms of staffing, budget, and political clout, EPA is in way over its head in inspecting and trying to fix mine waste hazards. Many state agencies are in an even worse position. Overwhelmed and underfunded, huh? What other cheer do you have for us today? Well, there's much talk about big storms, what with Katrina's 10th anniversary coming up on August 28th. Like mine waste, it's a big problem, and our response doesn't necessarily match up. We've been lucky for the past decade on the U.S. East Coast with tropical hurricanes, even though Superstorm Sandy kicked New York and New Jersey through the goalposts. And the East Coast luck isn't universal. Typhoons have taken a huge toll in Asia in recent years, but our luck may be our last refuge. Hurricanes may have been sparse, but they're by no means gone. Sea level rise will make the storm surges worse, and there are far more people living along the coast taking a big gamble. There were 600,000 people in Lee County, Florida, that's where Fort Myers is, in the last census. A hundred years earlier, there were 6,000. A hundred times the increase in a hundred years. So for all the people in harm's way, let's make sure we do more than just remember Katrina. Let's make sure we're getting ready for the next one. So in addition to all this advice, Peter, it's time for our history lesson. Take us back in time. What do you have on the calendar for us this week? Two items about being prepared or not from Italy a few centuries ago, and two reasons why we learn from history. In August 1630, the city fathers of Florence were coping with the plague. They had a novel idea a visitation where wise men would comb the streets and alleys of the city to figure out what was causing the epidemic. It may have been the first public health survey in history, though many Florentine citizens remain convinced that vampires caused the plague, not flea-carrying rats as we know today. And what else? 
The year 1769, the northern Italian city of Brescia, which is about midway between Milan and Venice. This is back in the day when the church is the center of everything in a community, so city leaders thought it would be a dandy place to store all the gunpowder beneath the steeple that didn't have a lightning rod, which had just been invented a few years earlier. Roughly 3,000 people died, and one-sixth of the city was leveled by the deadliest lightning strike up until that time in history. So there's been a worse lightning disaster since then? Yes, 4,000 lives were lost in 1856 on the Greek Isle of Rhodes when lightning hit a church steeple above vaults full of gunpowder and explosives. So, Steve, please check the lightning rod on the Living on Earth castle. Uh, Will do, and we'll keep our powder safe and dry and elsewhere, Peter. Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News at ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org. Thanks for taking the time today. We'll talk to you soon. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, LOE.org. Among the writers inspired by the American West, two of the most iconic are Edward Abbey and Wallace Stegner. When Abbey wrote the novel The Monkey Wrench Gang, he seeded a new brand of radical environmentalism, maybe even eco-terrorism. While Stegner's prose promoted the passage of the Wilderness Act. Now, a writer of our own time has traveled across the West and through the pages of their books to discover their legacy and relevance today. David Gessner's new book is called All the Wild That Remains, Edward Abbey, Wallace Stegner, and the American West. And he joins us now from Boulder, Colorado. David, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks, Steve. Tell me about these two writers, Edward Abbey and Wallace Stegner. Why did you decide to write about them in particular? Well, I moved west from the beautiful city of Worcester, Massachusetts in 1991. I'd gone through a rough period that included testicular cancer, and I applied to five grad schools in creative writing, and I was rejected by four. The one I got into was Boulder, Colorado, and it changed my life. I was kind of airlifted from Worcester to Boulder, and as I moved west, I started to read the west, and I started with Desert Solitaire, which is a book that has converted many a person at Abbey's great kind of modern Walden. And I was kind of coming back to life, and it was exhilarating reading. Abbey proved a gateway drug to Stegner, and I loved the two guys, and I said, I'm going to live in the West forever. And it turned out forever lasted seven years. (laughs) And I took them with me when I came back east. I moved back to Cape Cod, and suddenly I was looking at my old land in a new way. I think I, I just always wanted to get back to them. And then three summers ago, I headed west, and I kind of followed their trails and threaded in biography as I went. In a way, Edward Abbey and Wallace Stegner were both immigrants to America's West, kind of like you. I imagine that's part of the attraction. It really was, particularly with Ed Abbey. He was born in Home, Pennsylvania, which is really kind of the Appalachians. And he'd always dreamed and fantasized about the West, had little cowboy pictures. And then at 17, he hitchhiked west. And that first moment of seeing the mountains totally changed his life. He, in typical Abbey fashion, compared it to seeing a naked girl. He said it struck a fundamental chord in his imagination that has rung ever since. And I think a lot of us who made that same drive know that feeling. When I did it driving from Worcester, I remember I wrote in the book, had John Denver himself come on the radio, I would have warbled along. So that was kind of Abbey's newcomer take. Stegner's was a little different, though he was born in Iowa and spent early years in the Dakotas. Then his dad, who was this typical frontiersman migrant, moved them to Washington State, then up to Saskatchewan, then to Montana and Salt Lake City, 
So he was always in movement. Stegner, with his large mind, kind of extrapolated from that early movement and saw that as a typical Western way of being, going to a place, trying to take from it, and moving on. So they were different sorts of Westerners, but they both were always in movement. Now, how did these two writers respond to each other's work? I gather they crossed paths at Stanford at one point. They did. Well, the way they responded to each other is a little different than the way they responded to each other's work. I looked all over through Abby's journals. You know, Stegner was his teacher for a year at Stanford. He wrote everything down in these journals. And the only thing I could find Abby saying about Stegner was, he had the most distinguished-looking bags under his eyes. (laughs) (laughs) So they didn't make much of an impression, strangely. You know, Abby was just the kind of guy that by the 1960s, Stegner would have disliked. Stegner said he, he didn't like writing that throbbed rather than thought. He didn't like Ken Kesey, for instance. Kesey said of Stegner, he drank Jack Daniels and I took LSD. And he didn't like hippies. And Abby had a kind of hippie side to him, or at least a wild side. But what they had in common was the place itself. So in Stegner's mind, that's what rescued Ed Abbey as a writer. And Abby said of Stegner that he had an excess of moderation. That was his complaint with Stegner. <laughs> so compare their writing styles for me. You know, a couple of people along the way said Stegner's was more academic. I don't find it academic. Both men, though some of their greatest books were nonfiction, their essential goals early on were to write the great American novel, to be Hemingway, to be Thomas Wolfe, to score the big one. And the fiction writing of Stegner, for me, carries over into his nonfiction. It's smart. The later books have what I call the grumpy grandpa narrator, where it's kind of this first-person curmudgeonly sharp-tongued kind of writing. Abby really found his voice when he turned to nonfiction. An editor in New York suggested, why don't you write about that time you spent being a, a ranger in Canyonlands? And he wrote it, and it's amazing the way the voice comes through on the page. Now, my take is, is that both of these men were actually pretty angry about what was going on in the West and some aspects of their own lives, and yet they had, well, rather different styles of expressing that. Yeah. Stegner, who's probably his most distilled example of that feeling, was the Wilderness Letter. And he was quite upset. You know, he'd been around for a while. He was born in 1909, and he'd seen places that he loved be destroyed. But restraint was one of his watchwords. And he talks in that Wilderness Letter about the West still being a place of hope. Uh, Later on in his life, he started to feel some despair. And he was the one who first said, that we fight environmental fights and we have to keep winning them over and over. And if we lose them once, all is lost. Abby, on the other hand, was more directly pissed off about what was going on. And he let people know. Uh, You know, he said his writing grew from two places, love and hate. Places he had fallen madly in love with in the American West in the desert. When he saw them despoiled, he didn't waste words and he didn't spare words. And he came blasting back at people. He compared the philosophy of growth to the ideology of the cancer cell that kept growing and growing and killing its host. So, you know, Stegner, with his excess of moderation, may have rolled his eyes a little about Abby, but Abby was effective. I've never heard of a writer, I've never seen a writer who has such direct literary influence. So in what ways has the environmental movement had to adapt to the recasting of the monkey wrenching that uh, Abby was talking about uh, as eco-terrorism, the FBI you know, goes after folks who try to sabotage uh, the infrastructure of development. Well, I spoke to an FBI agent, uh, Jane Quimby, 
She's a retired FBI agent. And I said, you know, what would a young, imaginative monkey wrencher do now? And she kind of looked at me like I was crazy, as if she was saying, you realize I'm an FBI agent, right? Uh, but then we worked our way around to things like whale wars or Tim to Christopher, who bid on oil land in the waning days of the Bush administration and took it out of oil companies' hands and landed in jail for two years in Denver. And even though that might not have done much practically, it's the power of symbol that I think we still take from Ed Abbey. You know, Earth First unfurled the crack in the Glen Canyon Dam, just a, a drawing of the crack, a depiction of it. And that too is the power of symbol. So Ed wouldn't do very well today. He'd probably end up in jail. I mean, he shares some rough borders with the Unabomber. But what I think he still is viable now is his strength and his power of symbol. So to what extent do you think uh, Abby and Stegner uh, intended their writings to encourage activism? Well, it's, it's an interesting thing. Both said clearly that making great literature was their number one goal. Number two, like Stegner actually wrote it out with a one and a two, was saving wild lands and fighting for the environment. And in that regard, Stegner did not mind being openly propagandistic. He didn't mind turning his ability to use words toward the fight. But he would have frowned on anyone looking at his novels and seeing that same thing there. Abby's a little different because, in a way, Monkey Ranch Gang is kind of like Uncle Tom's Cabin or any overtly political book. He makes no bones about the fact that this wacky band of people is going around with dreams of blowing up the Glen Canyon Dam. Abby saw in his own lifetime Earth First Start because of his books and, and many other direct outcroppings of, of his work. Now, there's a criticism that wilderness is only accessible and relevant to a select group of people making it elitist. In fact, folks like John Muir wanted the Native Americans off of wilderness land back when he was touting wilderness. How do you respond to that? And how would Abby and Stegner respond, do you think? Well, I think Abby would respond in a very similar fashion to Stegner, but with an angrier growl. But the gist would be basically, this is a huge part of the best of what America has to offer, that we have these places where people aren't. And as Stegner said in the Wilderness Letter, there's something that's essential to the American character in having these wild places. And this might sound a little highfalutin, but having spent the last month traveling around the West, I've got to say there's a psychological and mental correspondence between being in these places and just this physical lift. There's a greatness to it. And if we give this away, we give away something essential. And the fight for it was at the core of the similarity between these two men. They weren't looking to expunge these places of people. In fact, people interacting with these places was a thrill for Stegner. So both whilst Stegner and Ed Abbey lived in a land that's loaded with myth, you know, the rugged individual cowboy, how did they respond to that? Well, Stegner wanted to pull the veil away. He hated the rugged individualist myth. He thought it was a lie. He saw the West as a place, because it was so dry and vast, that could only be settled by sharing. And his dad was the cowboy, so he reacted against that kind of cliché. Abby's a little different. Abby didn't like cows. He didn't like cows on public land. And he made fun of cowboys. He almost got in a shooting match during one talk in Montana. But he was wearing those cowboy boots, and he was out in the desert. And in a way, Abby used the cowboy myth to fight against the cowboy. 
he was a rugged individualist, but he understood that rugged individualism would ultimately kill the West. So how is it that these men are relevant today? We have climate change, uh, we have uh, wilderness uh, on fire, we have drilling and uh, mining and extracting. How do they speak to today's conditions? I think Abby does directly through the use of strong language and through the use of symbol. He kind of rousts us from our slumbers. I do worry that his voice, because it's so adamant, would just be added to the noise of the kind of MSNBC versus Fox, you know, constant clutter. But I think he could cut through. And one reason I think he could cut through is humor. You know, you don't get a lot of that in, in environmentalism. And he was a very funny man. Stegner tackles things as usual in a larger way. He was a master of connecting the dots. In his time, the dots in the West meant aridity, the cycles of drought, the importance of snowpack. And 50 years ago, he was seeing things that are relevant to this summer in California and throughout the West. You know, he realized, for instance, that rain and snow are very different. The snowpack acts as kind of a time release, letting water go through the summer, through the spring, whereas rain just rolls off the dry Western land. So his brilliant big picture thinking would now have to include climate change, obviously, and it would also have to include loss of trees through beetles. And I've actually been singing as I've been traveling. If you remember the old beginning of All in the Family, where Edith and Archie sing, Mr. We could use a man like Herbert Hoover again. I've been singing We Could Use a Man like Wallace Stegner again, because that kind of big thinker is really not just an American type, but a Western type. David Gessner is the author of All the Wild That Remains and eight other books, including The Return of the Osprey and My Dream Manifesto. Dave, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, Steve. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation and brought to you from the campus of the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emma Fitzgerald, Lauren Hinkle, Shannon Kelleher, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, John Duff, and Jennifer Marquis. Our show is engineered by Tom Tiger with help from Jake Rigo, Noel Flatt, and Jeff Wade. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Candida Fund and Trinity University Press, publisher of Moral Ground, Ethical Action for a Planet in Peril. 80 visionaries who agree with Pope Francis, climate change is a moral issue for each of us. TUPress.org. And Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. PRI Public Radio International.